Well, hello. How are you? It's been a while. So I want to say hello to all of you and all of our campuses are joining us this weekend. So hello to you who are joining us uh, at each one of our campuses. It's been good. Uh, great to be back. We had a, a basically a month away, uh, two weeks uh, of study and getting ready for fall and those kind of things, a couple weeks vacation. And then this last week uh, was out. In fact, we just got back uh, a team of our pastors out in Atlantic Canada uh, visiting with some of our church planning partners. You'll know all about the fact that Northview wants to be planting churches across the country. And we know we can't do it alone. Uh, we need partners across the country. And so we're exploring options to work with people. So four of us were back and uh, we got some team pictures up there. Uh, it was really cool to be out there. If uh, you watch the HGTV show, Solid Rock Builds, uh, we happen to be in the tiny little village of Brigus, where their headquarters is, so we went over there and uh, looked at all the very expensive t-shirts and didn't buy one, but we stood behind the, uh, the, the poster there and got that. So that was our team, uh, Pastor Jolly, Freddie, Luke. It was a, a crazy week. You can imagine traveling with these people and looking at what God is doing. So it was really cool worshiping with Calvary Baptist Church uh, last Sunday in St. John's, Newfoundland, and then uh, a couple days over in Halifax. So the partners there, Mile One Mission, Calvary Baptist Church, and Port City Church, which is an emerging new church in the city of Halifax. And it was so encouraging for us to be able to be with a group of men and women who love the Lord and who are reaching out with the gospel in reality, in some of Canada's hardest, hardest soil, uh, they call it the burnt over region, where the Great Awakenings back in the 1700s spilled over into Atlantic Canada, and now uh, the majority of people there have no faith affiliation. Uh, the nuns and the duns are the majority of the people who live there. And, uh, and honestly, as we've been studying the book of First Peter, I was thinking about it back there, that these folks on the East Coast, uh, uh, what they're living with aligns so closely with what we've been looking at in 1 Peter, the pushback that the people of God in that first century church were beginning to experience. They weren't dying for their faith yet, but they were being pressured. The heat was turning on. And so I thought, you know, just tell you a, a few of those stories. If you've not been back there, St. John's, Newfoundland uh, is one of the oldest cities in North America. Uh, John Cabot landed there in 1497 over 500 years ago. And uh, they have one of the longest running regattas in all of North America, over 200 years. 1816, uh, rowers started rowing on this little lake they call the Kitty Vitty. And uh, we happened to be there during regatta week, so we got to go down there and with about 20,000 other people standing around that lake watching the rowers go across. And if you want a little bit of geography lesson, because I needed this years ago, uh, Newfoundland, 5,000 kilometers east of us. And so if you look at the big map of the province, Newfoundland and Labrador, and then in the, the, the southeast corner, the whole map, there's about 500,000 people that live in this entire region. Half of them live down in, of course, the warmest part of the province, as far south as they could get. Southeast corner there, the Avalon Peninsula, about 260,000 people. And what's amazing is the churches on that Avalon Peninsula, if you totaled all of the evangelical churches, what we would call gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches, there are less than 2,500 people in attendance out of over 250,000. So it's less than 1% evangelical, so the spiritual need is so amazing. Uh, St. John's is a city of neighborhoods. Uh, throw up a neighborhood map there. You've seen these where they put the words together of all the various neighborhoods. And as we get talking to people there, it was very interesting. They all identified with the neighborhood that they lived in, and many of them third and fourth generation. So they don't say they're from St. John. They'll say they're from the particular neighborhood. And just a couple of illustrations, you'll see the names there on the screen. The neighborhood of Kilbride is where one of the churches is being planted. 
planted. It's a, a neighborhood that's about 130 years old, up on one of the hillsides there. And in 130 years, there has never been a church of any type. Not mainline, not Catholic, not evangelical. So the very first church being planted in that neighborhood after 130 years. Uh, a little place called Paradise. Wouldn't you like to live in Paradise? Out on the edge of town, uh, 25,000 people live out in Paradise, and there is one church there. And that church is less than 100 people strong. Uh, so it's a, a kind of a cool story. They bought a little chunk of land out there they hope to build there in, a, in the coming years. Uh, it was interesting as we headed along the South Peninsula. So we left with the, the planter who was planting in Kilbride, and he is from the South Peninsula, and we began driving down, and we went down 45, 50 minutes, but he's like, you can drive three hours along the southern edge of the peninsula before you come to another evangelical church. So it was very, very sobering to be in this part of the world. So very, very different from the chunk of uh, land that we live on out here uh, and the spiritual climate here in the Fraser Valley. Uh, there was, we met a doctor, just so many stories coming to mind. He's met a doctor attending in Kilbride. He and his wife drive 45 minutes to get into church. So they moved into this little village. It's her hometown. They'd been away for a while and come back. And so they put up posters around town, their little village. Uh, we're interested in having a Bible study. Every time they put the posters up, they'd get torn, torn down. Put them up again, torn down. Put them up again, they finally gave up. Mainline denominations are in complete freefall. The Catholic Church recently sold off 43 properties. And the week we were there, just this past week, they announced that they're selling another 70. Including, look at this picture, the historic basilica that sits on the hill in St. John's. This massive cathedral that was built in 1787 just sold for about $3 million. And while we were there, those 70 church properties, so throw another picture up, this little church down in Cape Broil, that's actually the hometown of this planter that we were visiting. So this church seats about 400 people. It's not in bad shape. You want to buy a church? 189000 It can be yours. I'm like, you know what? We should take an offering and buy a church and let them start a new church there. So Northeast Vision... The big, hairy, audacious goal we talk about is, yes, we want to reach Abbotsford. That's our primary mission field, to make disciples, more and better disciples, more and better leaders, and more and better churches. And the big dream is, there, would there be a day in Canada where there was a gospel-centered church within reach of every Canadian? And we know we can't do that alone. We, we need tons of partners across the country, and that's why we were there. So the partners we're meeting with, throw up a pic there of the, the Atlantic Canada team. Some of you, you were, if you are here last October, you'll remember Stephen Bray stood on this stage, uh, preached to us uh, back in October. He leads a little Baptist church and is also the executive director of Mile One Mission. And then these other two couples are their first two church plants that are going out. And they've got a vision to plant 10 churches in the city of St. John, and then by God's grace, they hope to plant 50 churches in the entire province over the next 20 years. So they've got a big vision for that little chunk of real estate. So Matt Leahy and his wife Ruth and uh, Adam Diamond and his wife Sabrina, those are the two couples there. They're both native Newfoundlanders. Uh, each one of them has been away for a port of time and then come back home, and they are planting in this hard soil. And I thought, you know, I'll just tell you three stories of what these guys have been up against. So Matt and his wife Ruth are planting in Kilbride. Uh, the only facility there is a little community center, and so they've been able to rent it on weekends, and they'll do a Sunday afternoon service. Uh, and part of that community center is some sports fields, uh, basketball hoops, and a soccer field that is in horrible condition. Uh, it's hilly like this, and the grass is bad. And they're like, you know what? 
We should take this on as a project. We can raise the money. We can go to church people and friends and community. We can resurface this sports field so the neighborhood kids actually have a great soccer field to go to. So they get together. They go to the city. And at first, the city was interested in the project, a little community project, until they heard they were a church. And then they said, thanks, but no thanks. We'll do it ourselves. And two years later, nothing has been done. The other couple uh, are, are meeting downtown. So I'll throw up a picture of another old white church, 600-seater that is standing empty in downtown. They arranged to rent it to start their services. And you'll remember last summer uh, when Josh Duell up in Praxis had their protests outside the church. At that very same time, before they had even had their first service, an activist who was on city council got wind that a new church was going to be starting. He called the owners who had bought this church, a community organization, and said, absolutely not, and they lost their lease on the spot. And then one more story. That map of the neighborhoods that we just saw up there, all those words, I mean, there's lots of those around the country. You can uh, Google pretty well any, any city in the world, and you can get a map like that. That particular one was done by a local artist in St. John. And they've been giving these away as gifts to people who come and visit them. And they, they wanted to give us one, but actually it was too big to fit in the suitcase. Uh, but they called the artist. They thought, rather than just buy it at a local store, let's go directly to the artist, and we can build a bit of a relationship with him, a little bit of business for him, and we can bless our guests with these things. And it was great until he found out that it was a church wanting to buy his map. And he said, no, sorry, can't sell them to Christians. Can you believe it? It's crazy. Living in the Fraser Valley, it's hard to even imagine, it's hard to relate to what these friends of ours are up against, where the church is actively being opposed. We've not yet had to face what other Christians in other parts of the world, and nor even right here in eastern Canada. So, we're in week 14, 1 Peter, we're in chapter 4. You know this already. We've repeated it again and again. This book is written to encourage Christians who are facing the heat for their faith. Uh, exiles, aliens, strangers. They're called to be a rejoicing people, a holy people, a loving people, a representative people. They're to be priests unto the world, representing God to the world and the world back to God. And the central theme of the book categorically, is standing firm in the face of suffering. And, he, and Peter's trying to get them to lift their eyes up out of the daily pressures and onto their identity in Christ. And so the, the book opens with this incredible hymn of praise, Blessed be the God and Father of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bless God together that he has called us to be born again into a living hope, into a secure salvation into a guaranteed inheritance. And so even though we have to suffer for a while, we will rejoice. We're called to be a rejoicing people. But it's that little phrase in the first chapter, even though we suffer, that might be why this book is somewhat neglected in our day and in our part of the world. Not a lot of people lean into a study of 1 Peter, and maybe for three reasons. I think, first of all, because we have not had to face this kind of persecution in our lifetimes in North America. We have lived in what many call the comfort zone of the West. Secondly, we don't want to face it, right? We're not looking for trouble. We're not looking for persecution. We love peace and prosperity and pleasure. And we do everything possible to run away from pain and persecution. So why would we read a book about suffering and persecution? 
And then thirdly, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, I think we've got some bad theology floating around in North America as well that has influenced our thoughts about Christians and suffering. So there's no question that we have lived in a comfort zone of the West where Christianity has had a, a majority position for hundreds of years and where Judeo-Christian values have guided our nation, our laws, and our lives. Uh, you may or may not know this. The Canadian Charter of Rights, do you know what the very first 12 words say? This is what it says. Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God. That's the first dozen words in our Charter of Rights. When it was penned, it was acknowledged that this nation acknowledges the supremacy of God. And those principles have guided our nation for 150 years. But the times are changing. And Christians are no longer in the majority. And increasingly, uh, where it used to be a good thing to be called a Christian, increasingly, not so much. And so the question that Peter raises for all of us is how do we respond and how will we respond when our Christian identity puts us in the crosshairs? When to carry the name Christian or the name of Jesus is to invite ridicule or persecution. We might debate it. Which is harder? The first century, uh, pre-Christian, that this audience was dealing with when Christianity was a new thing. What is this new sect? What is this new religion? What is this new strange teaching? Or is it more difficult in a post-Christian world? Obviously, they both have their challenges, but the challenge in our world is that the fastest-growing religious demographic in, in North America is the nuns, no religious affiliation, but even more challenging are the duns. Been there, done that, don't want anything to do with it. In fact, I, I know if we took a survey, every single one of us will know somebody who's done. Done with religion, done with church, done with evangelicalism, done with all that stupidity, don't even talk to me about it. So I don't know which is worse, pre-Christian or post-Christian. They're both hard. So after 14 weeks, we're finishing out the third chunk, the middle chunk of this four-part letter. And it, it actually opens with a jolt. Now, I don't know if we can go back three weeks, if you can remember. But it started with the phrase in chapter 3, verse 9, and to this you were called. That was the beginning of the paragraph. You were called. You were called to suffer. You're like, I'm called to suffer? Called to salvation, as the book opens, yes and amen. Called to rejoice, as it says, yes and amen. Called to suffer? And if you want a theme in one sentence for this next little chunk, it would be this. That suffering as a Christian should not surprise us. In fact, we should actually expect it. That's what Peter says as he wraps up. We've been in this particular paragraph for four, this is our fourth week in this particular paragraph. So we're going to look at it in modern lingo in four points. Uh, Peter basically says this, don't freak out. Don't suffer needlessly. So two don'ts and then two do's. Do keep your eyes on the prize, and do entrust yourself to God. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read the first two or three verses, and then we'll dive in and just keep reading. So, Beloved, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Okay, we'll stop right there. So verse 12, don't be surprised, or as we would say it, don't freak out. There's nothing that is happening to you that should come as a shock. Now, life is full of surprises, good surprises and bad surprises sometimes, right? You get bad news, you get good news. Uh, I was reading a biography on vacation, uh, James Houston, and he was sharing the story of his wife surprising him with a surprise birthday party, and she wasn't big into surprises, and he was quite amazed as he came home in this entire party. He had not a clue, and they had a wonderful evening. And at the end of the evening, he had to remind his wife, this actually wasn't my birthday. It's your folks' anniversary. That's what she was thinking of. So it was a great surprise. Life is full of surprises. But here he says, don't be surprised. And, and he, he could echo back to say, because Jesus told you that this would happen. So many passages. I just picked a couple of them. Matthew 24, talking about the end of time. And Jesus saying, and you, my disciples, will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. At the end of the age, many will fall away. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's why we talk about the perseverance of the saints so much that you make a profession of faith and then you live it out practicing your faith and you persevere in your faith to the very end. And in John's gospel, chapter 15 and chapter 16, grab two verses there. If the world hates you, Jesus speaking again, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So Peter mentions suffering 16 times in this short little book. And we need to be really clear what he's talking about because he's speaking about a specific kind of trial. And you will know this, that there are various kinds of trials that come into everybody's life. Uh, so you talk about the, the issues, the, the sort of the three biggies, uh, health challenges, financial challenges, re relational challenges. And all of those kind of trials and suffering are addressed in, in other places of the Scripture. But in this particular text, he's speaking of a very specific kind of trial or suffering. And it's none of those. It's not health. It's not finances. It's not relationship. It is specifically that you are suffering because of your Christian identity. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 13 says, you share in Christ's sufferings. So rejoice. Verse 14, he says, you're insulted for the name of Jesus and you're blessed. Verse 16, he says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. And then verse 19, if you suffer according to God's will. So the suffering that Peter is talking about is not those other trials. They're, they're important to look at those and deal with them and take them to the Lord. But right here, it's because you carry the name of Christ. And he calls it a fiery trial. Starting to get hot. Now, now, some people would look at it and they go, oh yeah, we know what he's talking about. Because Nero was burning Christians. Well, as far as we can tell, Nero hadn't started that yet. That started about AD 64. So if you don't know that story, Nero built these wonderful gardens. And of course, it was the day before uh, electricity or gas lamps or any of that. And he wanted a way to light up his gardens at night. And so he would take Christians when they began the persecution and dip them in tar and put them up on the post and light them on fire. 
You can read about it. But that had not yet happened. So that's not the fiery trial that he's talking about, but it it is the fact that the culture is starting to push back on us. The heat is turning up. These, These alien people, these elect exiles, are starting to have an effect on the culture around them, and the culture is pushing back. Now, now some, it's Gentiles and Jews that are receiving this letter, and some of the Jewish people might have remembered a very familiar Old Testament story. Some of you probably already thought of it as well. If any of you went to Sunday school back as a kid, you'll remember the story of Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those stories? Nebuchadnezzar builds this 90-foot statue of himself and demands that everybody bows down in worship to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are like, no, we're not bowing down. We're not worshiping that God. We only worship the one true God, Jehovah God. We won't bow down. And so they're like, well, if you don't bow down, you're going to get thrown into the fire. You're going to die in a fiery furnace. And in Daniel chapter 3, here's their answer to that challenge. Well, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Entrust yourself to God. You look at that and you go, wait a minute. It's great. If he, God God is going to set us free. But if he doesn't, you're like, yeah, right? If you know the story, they do indeed get thrown into that fiery furnace. And they stand in there unscathed by the fires. And as Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he actually sees a fourth person, like the Son of Man, we're told, standing with them. And they call them out completely unsinged. Verse 13, we just read it. It says that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we also get to share in his glories to come. We suffer with him now. We share in his glories in that day. In other words, we live this day, our days now, in light of the coming day. We live this day in light of that day, in the hope of the resurrection, in the hope and the inheritance and the salvation, the the living hope of chapter one, that we rejoice in that. We've got this hope in front of us that our eyes are ultimately not on this life. And this is what we really got to get our heads wrapped around, that that this world is not where we expect to find ultimate happiness. We've got to get our minds wrapped around this, that this world is not our ultimate home that we're an alien resident and that we know that we're looking forward to a a new city, a a new restored heavens and earth, that there is coming a day and that the story ain't over yet. And the next line in verse 14, I think, is one of the most provoking, thought-provoking words or phrases in verse 14. It says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That is so interesting. You're blessed, and the Spirit of God is on you. Now, that's an interesting thought, because I don't know when you've talked about the evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, all the workings of the filling of the Spirit, and living a a Spirit-filled life. And I don't think I've ever heard a message on this particular outcome of the Spirit of God. So in this context, he doesn't talk about you're going to get baptized in the Spirit and speak with tongues. There's certain people believe that. He's not talking about signs and wonders and prophetic ministry. He's not talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, you don't want to know what the sign of the Spirit of God is on you? It's when you're suffering. You're like, oh my goodness. Do I really want the spirit-filled life? 
If the sign of the Spirit of God being actively at work in my life is that it is going to invite suffering. And this is so critical. It's really so very critical for us in North America. Because there is a whole stream of false teaching that would go directly against that thought. There's a whole stream of teaching that says God only wants to bless us, and by blessing they mean everything up and to the right. We call it the prosperity gospel. That God is like a a genie in a lantern, and you just rub that lantern, and you say a few prayers, and God will grant all the wishes that you want. And, And basically what the prosperity gospel tells us is that if you come to God through faith in Christ, you will be blessed. And by blessing, they mean specifically you're going to be wealthier and healthier and happier. That's what they mean by that. Now, we can spend a lot of time here. Let me just throw up five characteristics, five errors of prosperity gospel teaching. This is uh, written by David Jones. He writes for Gospel Coalition, and he says this. I'll just throw them up there. If you take notes, you can look them up. But number one, they take the Abrahamic covenant as a means to material entitlement. Going back to the Old Testament and looking at Abraham's promise, it says you're going to be blessed. And in Abraham's case, it was material prosperity. And taking that promise and applying it today and saying, because it was Abraham's promise, it is also our promise. We should all be wealthy. Number two, that Jesus' atonement extends to the sin, get this, the sin of material poverty. In other words, if you're poor, there must be some sin in your life. Because God wants to bless you with wealth. Number three, that Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. I don't know if you've ever been doing this late at night, scrolling through television, and you come across one of these guys, and it's like, all you need to do is send in an offering. Just seed that prayer with a check to this particular ministry, and God will multiply that seed that you have. Any of you seen it? Number four, that faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. In other words, you name it and claim it. If I've got enough faith to speak it into existence, I can claim what God is going to give me. I claim that yellow Jeep in Jesus' name. Yes, please. And number five, that prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. There's a lot more about it. Back 30, 40 years ago, the big names were Oral Roberts and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Some of you older folks remember those guys. The most famous today, beyond measure, is Joel Osteen, the largest church in the states down in Texas, but there's a whole host of teachers. Benny Hinn, Paula White, who was the advisor to the, the past president, Donald Trump, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Myers, Kenneth Copeland. I mean, you could scroll through dozens of these names. And while most people listening to this message this weekend in the, in the Northview context would go, yeah, yeah, those teachers are off track. I think most of us would get that. The challenge is, I think that we have been very subtly influenced by this type of teaching. Because we live with so much of it in North America, that even in the evangelical church, we're shocked when bad stuff comes our way, somehow we still say to ourselves, how can this possibly be? If God wants to bless me, If God's a good God and he would never give a stone to his children, but he'd give them bread, uh, certainly God wants me to be happy. We've been so influenced by this teaching without even thinking about it. Am I being punished by God? Do I just need a little more faith? There must be sin in my life. 
And so it's so common, the disappointment with God that eventually drives people away from the church. They'll actually leave their faith. They'll leave the church about it. And, and what we're talking about and why you hear us talk so much about this is that we've got to get deep roots down into the Word of God, into the fundamental teachings and doctrines and theologies of this book, uh, the four, parable of the four soils. Uh, Jesus warned about the rocky soil, the ones who don't have deep roots. And the context there is specifically when trials come their way, when something bad comes into their life, when some suffering, some disappointment, they don't have roots down into the word and they fall away, they wither up. So as followers of Jesus, we need a robust theology of suffering. And we get it from letters like 1 Peter. So we spent most of our time there. We're going to quickly go through the rest. Don't freak out. It's part of the plan. Rejoice and be blessed. And then he goes on to say, and don't suffer needlessly. So verse 15 and 16. Let no, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, he says, make sure you're suffering for the right thing. It just makes sense that if you're guilty of murder or theft or any other kind of evil doing, it's no shock that you would suffer or that you would be punished. It's the law. It's, it's the Old Testament law, and it's also Roman law. Uh, you murder, you steal, you, you, you go to jail, you get punished. But then he adds an, a really interesting word, and it's interesting in the original language. The first three are coupled together. Murderer, thief, evildoer. And then there's a, another conjunction that says, or even as a meddler, and that's a very interesting word. That particular word is only used here in the New Testament. So the ESV, what we just read, it's meddler. The Revised Standard, a mischief maker. The New King James actually puts it in our language better, a busybody. Isn't that funny? A murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody. Don't suffer that for that. Uh, in their commentary, Walls and Anders, he says this, or they say this. This refers to Christians, none of us would do this, who stick their noses into situations where they have no business. Words like agitator, disruptor, or troublemaker give us the proper sense of that term meddler. By interfering in the lives of others, a meddler disrupts the peace and harmony of the local church and the community. What, what Peter is saying is it's possible sometimes we bring the suffering on ourselves. We're suffering for the wrong reasons. It's not for the name of Jesus. It's because we're busybodies. We're meddlers. We're agitators. When we don't stay in our own lane, when we stick our nose in someone else's business. I, I think it's why Romans 14 is such an important text where it says, who are you to judge another man's servant? We all give an account to God. We serve God, right? And he ultimately will judge us. So stop despising one another. Stop judging one another. Stop meddling in other people's affairs. So don't suffer for the wrong stuff. Instead, suffering right, on the other hand, verse 16 says, is when you suffer for the name, you are not ashamed of that. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Wear proudly the name Christian. Now, we need to talk about it because in our day and age, we just use that word Christian all the time. It identifies some two billion people on the planet claim to be Christians. But in the early church, in those early days, the word Christian actually only appears three times in your New Testament. Did you know that? 
It wasn't a self-declared. It was a derogatory term against them. It was first used in Antioch. They called them Christians. They called them little Christs. And it was used as a slang or as a slur against them. It was used by Agrippa in Acts 26 when Paul's preaching to him. And he's like, what? You want to convince me to become one of you? You want me to be a Christian? And he says it in a derogatory way. And so Peter here says, in other words, if somebody is naming you a name that is a, a bad name, the NIV says this, if you suffer as a Christian, praise God that you bear the name. Now, I was trying to think, okay, what are the names today and in my lifetime? What, what are the kind of things against Christians? Bible thumpers, holy rollers, do-gooders, fanatics, evangelicals. That's a word that's a powerful biblical word that is just getting trashed these days, right? More and more Christians are going, I don't think I want to use the word evangelical anymore. We've got to recapture the meaning of that word. And it's not the name itself, of course, that matters. It's what it represents. Because the name Christian represents a set of beliefs, clear ideas about what the Bible has to say about things like gender and sexuality and human flourishing, non-negotiable positions on marriage and on the right to life, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ that, that Jesus had the audacity to say there is salvation in no other way. I am the way, truth, and life. You don't get to the Father except through me. The exclusive claim of Christianity that all religions are not the same. And so if you're serious about living out the values of this book, then you inevitably find yourself out of step. And, and the question, of course, is this. Will we willingly and will we proudly carry the name Jesus? Will we say, yes, that's who I am? One of the most famous stories uh, about 20 years ago when the Columbine High School shooting in, in Colorado, a story of one young girl who was asked by the shooter, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. And he shot her wrote a book about that story, identified as a Christian, and paid the ultimate price. Verse 17 and 18, we're encouraged, keep your eyes on the prize. The time for judgment to begin is at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's a, it's a really interesting phrase. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And you'll be familiar with three images of God's sanctifying work in our lives. There's, they're common in the, in the Bible. There's the, the father who disciplines his children, and he disciplines them for their good. So the kid doesn't like discipline at that point in time, but it's for their good. Like, don't play in the highway. You're going to get run over. Uh, eat your vegetables and clean your room and all the disciplines of, of raising citizens. And kids don't like it, but it's for their good. Then there's the smelting, the heating process of precious metals, how gold or silver or any precious metal is, is heated up until the dross rises to the top and it's skimmed off and then just the purity of the metal left. And, and then the third very common one is the vineyard and the pruning, that God wants us to bear abundant fruit and so he prunes off the dead wood or the unfruitful wood. And it reminds us that God's preparing a people for himself. It's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. We, we understand the picture that in every other area of life, we get it totally. No pain, no gain. Diet, 
exercise, some financial goal that you've got, sports, education, you name it. We have to press through the challenge. We have to press through the hardship to gain the prize. Or as, as it was said of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so the text is reminding us that we stand before the judgment and the purifying work of, of Christ now so that we don't stand before the judgment of God in that day. So we're called now to endure for the sake of the prize before us. It's one of the most encouraging thoughts. It's like a shot of adrenaline in our spiritual lives. Text of Hebrews 10. I love it. It's a long text. I've just got to read a huge chunk of it here. We'll put it up on the screen. Listen to this challenge. But recall the former days when you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay. And we're like, yes, Lord. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Amen? But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Eyes on the prize. And then finally, the very last sentence, do entrust yourself to God. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And so the summary of the last four weeks, this middle chunk, this section on suffering from chapter 3-8 up till now, is this thought. You have been called to this to suffer and to obtain a blessing, and how do you do this? How do you stand up? And I, I just give you the bad news. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We need God's help. We're seeing way too many people walking away from the faith and walking away from the church, and, and we all do battle. We battle with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. And on our own, it's a losing battle. But you know this. There's one who's gone before us, right? There's one who suffered. He suffered for us, and he suffers with us still. And the only way we stand when the heat gets turned up is by entrusting our lives entirely to the one who is faithful to us. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty wrote a song recently called He Will Hold Me Fast. Just beautiful, beautiful lyrics. A couple of verses go like this. When I hear my faith will fail, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. It's a sober message, isn't it? I can tell by the looks on your face. But it's a critical one. And maybe that's why this book is somewhat neglected. 
Because quite frankly, and I'm with you, we rather would read the happy clappy, don't worry, be happy type scriptures, right? And some of you, and I don't know your stories, may already be feeling the heat for your name Christian. Maybe where you work, where you go to school, maybe in your home, in the extended family tree. And the end-time prophecies, if they tell us anything about the last days before the return of Christ, they tell us that there are two parallel tracks that will happen simultaneously. It's very fascinating. That there will be a great falling away. It's called the apostasy. That the faith of many who once claimed to walk with Christ will actually fall away. They will not persevere. But secondly, alongside of that, and in a parallel, there is a great ingathering, a great harvest. In fact, it says the harvesters catch up with the, the ones who are planting seed. They're still harvesting. By the time it gets to the next season of planting, there is such an abundant harvest. So you have these two tracks side by side, a great falling away and a great ingathering simultaneously. And it's Jesus' promise that those who persevere to the end will be saved. And so it's into that context that we're sent with the gospel. And so over and over again, we are encouraged, eyes on Jesus. He walked before us. He's walking with us still. He is our living hope, our guaranteed inheritance. And in him and in him alone, our salvation is guarded by God. He is our comfort and our strength. He's the one who will carry us. And if the pressure gets greater and if the heat gets hotter, he will sustain us. That's the promise. So over the centuries, Christians have written a ton of stuff on this. We sing songs about it all the time. We've written confessions and creeds and catechisms to help us remember, to keep our equilibrium in the crazy times of our life, words to teach us and to instruct us and to, to comfort us. And one of my favorites is the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a long section that parents could read to their kids and kids would read back to them and churches would uh, do it together on their weekend services. And I love the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism and I'm going to actually ask you to read it with me this weekend as we close. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me and at all of our campuses, would you stand with me? And I'm going to read a section. It'll just say leader and congregation and we'll read it together, but I'll, I'll, I'll read the leader part if that's okay with you. And then you read out good and loud the congregational part. So here's the question. The very first question that it asks is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, you know the times that we live in. Uh, you know the, uh, the peace and the prosperity, the freedom that we have relished throughout our lifetime. Father, we confess that there are times, many times, we've taken it for granted. 
We've not even given it a second thought that we can drive off the driveway and head to a gathering of God's people without any fear of persecution or hard times. We have simply assumed that our neighbors would affirm our Christian beliefs and that they wouldn't bother having a quote-unquote Christian living on the street. But Father, we also see the times are changing. And yet we want to be men and women who do not fall into fear or fall into complacency, but we want to be men and women who do not shrink back. Men and women who commit our souls to you. Men and women who don't freak out that we're shocked or surprised, but men and women who know that you've gone before us and that we entrust our souls to you and that you are the one who will sustain us. And so, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in each person's life who's listening to this message. I don't know the hard times they might be facing right now, but, Father, I pray for these men and women, these boys and girls, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them. For those who may be feeling the heat, Lord, that you would challenge them to commit their lives, entrust their lives to you, the faithful one who will sustain them, and that we might persevere in our faith. And we ask that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated.